This week saw the launch of Tesla's Cybertruck. I don't know if you heard about this. Their new electric pickup truck. Its features include nearly impenetrable exoskeleton and Tesla armoured glass. But at its launch, the demonstration of this armoured glass didn't quite go according to plan. But later, Elon Musk, he tried to explain why the windows of the Cybertruck actually broke. He blamed the failure on the order in which the demonstration had taken place. What had happened was the truck was first hit with a sledgehammer to show how, uh, how the strength of the body work. And Musk claimed that that had caused an unseen crack at the base of the window which then led to the window being smashed when it was hit by the steel ball. He said that if the order of the demonstration had been reversed, you know, steel ball on window and then sledgehammer on the door, everything would have worked out as it should. Now, you can decide for yourself whether you believe him or not. But it is often true that the order of things is really important. It's one of the things that I was taught when I was growing up. Some things have to be done in order. So, of course, ladies before gentlemen. And that may not be politically correct to say that these days, but that's the way I was brought up. Or, you have to do all your homework before you're allowed to watch TV. Anybody know that one? Or, you have to always eat all of your main course before you're allowed any dessert. Yeah, you know that one? (laughs) Yeah, still is in our house, that one. And then, obviously, look both ways before you cross the road. That's crucially important. So the order of things is really important in lots of areas of life. And it's actually the same with Jesus. In his ministry, the order of things was really important. And this is what he taught in our next section of John's Gospel. So we're going to read from John chapter 12. Uh, verse 20, which is where we fall, uh, drop, uh, finished up last week. So John chapter 12, verse 20, uh, down to verse 26. Okay. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it. For eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Last week we looked about how Jesus entered into Jerusalem. eh, Sitting on a donkey. He was declaring that he was the king of Israel. But a different kind of king from what they were expecting. And we saw that as the Pharisees looked on, they said to each other, look, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This expressed their frustration 
and their concern over the popularity of Jesus because they saw him as a threat to their position and their privilege and power. But inadvertently they said more than they, 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 they realised. They were also pointed to the greater impact of Jesus' coming. He wasn't just coming to be the king of Israel, he was also coming to be the saviour of the world. And John saw this truth being lived out here in John chapter 12, starting to become a reality. When there were these Greeks who were among those who went up to uh, Jerusalem to worship at the feast. These Greeks were presumably Gentiles, that means non-Jews, who were God-fearers. They'd maybe been attracted to Judaism and to what the Judaism taught about God. And so they'd come to be a kind of part of the, the Passover celebrations. But they weren't satisfied with just a bit of religion. They wanted more than that. And so they came to Philip, maybe because he had a Greek name, or maybe because he was, he was from Galilee, so maybe had kind of connections with, with Gentiles, the Greeks there. But whatever the reason he came to Philip, the request was really clear. Now this is different from the Jews, because the Jews, they typically wanted to see a miraculous sign. Matthew records the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saying this, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. They wanted a spectacular demonstration of power. They wanted a visible confirmation of God's anointing on Jesus. But these Greeks, they wanted something far better. Sir, they asked, we would like to see Jesus. They weren't just curious to see a miracle. They weren't just desperate to have a supernatural experience. They wanted to meet Jesus for themselves, speak to him, spend time with him, get to know him. And this is God's desire for each one of us. He doesn't want us to focus on miracles or signs, or demonstrations of power. Instead, he wants us to focus on his son. He doesn't want us to long for the gifts that Jesus can bring into our lives. He wants us to long for him. Coming up to Christmas, and we think about how Jesus is our Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus came so that we can meet him for ourselves. So that we can get to know him personally. So we could spend time with him. So we can grow in our relationship with him. So I wonder if this is our greatest ambition. Is this what we desperately long for? Is this what our hearts cry out for? We want to see Jesus. This is what the Apostle Paul's ambition in life was. He stated it in Philippians chapter 3. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. 
But of course, the question was this. Could these non-Jews come to Jesus? Would they be welcomed? Would they be accepted? After all, Jesus had just been welcomed into Jerusalem as the king of Israel. So what did this mean for everybody else who was not part of this nation? I don't think anybody really was sure because we read that Philip, when these Greeks came to Philip, Philip went to Andrew and then both of them went to see Jesus. Maybe it's because they weren't sure. Would Jesus want to meet these Greeks? Maybe this was because Judaism was all about restricted access to God. Yes, there was access to God, but it was limited. So in the temple, this was very much portrayed in the architecture of the temple. So the most holy place, the temple building, the inner sanctuary, that was only accessible by the high priest and only once a year. Then the rest of the temple and the the initial courtyard around the temple was only accessible by the priests. Then the Jewish men, they could only come as far as the court of the Israelites. And then the Jewish women could only come as far as the outer court, the court of women. They couldn't come any further. And then if you were not a Jew, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't come to any of those parts. You had to stay in the, 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 the bigger outer court, the court of the Gentiles. So there was access to God, but it was restricted. And especially restricted for those who were non-Jews. And then Jesus' ministry was also limited to the Jews. When Jesus sent out his twelve disciples on their first kind of missionary journey, He said to them, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. And later in Matthew's Gospel, he declared, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So were these Greeks welcomed? Did Jesus just come for the Jews or did he come for everybody? Well, this question was actually answered really clearly right throughout John's Gospel. If you've been with us, you'll probably think of some of those things. For example, John chapter 1. John the Baptist declared, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then Jesus said his mission was because God so loved the world. And the Samaritan people of Sychar, they testified, we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. And then Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then as a good shepherd, Jesus said his flock included Gentiles as well as Jews. Because he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. So John has been very, wanted us to be very clear about this. Jesus came for the world. These Greeks would be welcomed into God's kingdom. They would not be excluded. They would not be restricted. 
Jesus is not only the King of the Jews. He's also the Savior of the world. And this is the true impact of Jesus' ministry for us. Before Jesus, we would have been kept at a distance. We would have been on the outside, excluded from a personal relationship with God. We would have been barred from experiencing the intimacy of his loving presence. But not anymore. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians. Ephesians is a big focus of, of, of his letter to Ephesians. Is this truth? Paul says this, you were separate from Christ. That's people like us. Excluded from citizenship in Israel. Foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope. Without God in the world. But now. In Christ Jesus. You who were once far away. Have been brought near. The barrier has been removed. The restrictions have just been torn up. It doesn't matter who we are, where we are from, what our background is, Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, old or young. We can meet Jesus today. He is the Saviour of the world. But for this to become a reality... Something had to happen first. Something for which, without that, this new way to God would just have been impossible. I don't know if you noticed when when we read through our passage this morning, when Philip and Andrew came to tell Jesus about the Greeks who wanted to meet him, Jesus didn't say, yes, of course, bring them. In fact, there's no more mention in the the gospel about whether these, these Greeks actually did get a chance to meet Jesus or not. Instead, this request seemed to remind Jesus that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Up to this point, John has said again and again that Jesus' hour had not yet come. For example, when people tried to arrest him, no one could because this time had not yet come. But now this hour had arrived. The goal of Jesus' entire mission was right now, the decisive hour, when Jesus would be glorified. To be glorified means for his his divine majesty would be revealed. His true awesomeness would be shown to everybody. But this was not going to happen the way that people might have expected. How was Jesus going to be glorified? Well, it wasn't through a spectacular miracle. It wasn't through a rise in his popularity with crowds chanting his name. It wasn't through getting put put in a position of of power and influence in the nation. Instead, Jesus was going to be glorified through his death on the cross. That's because his death was necessary for the harvest. Jesus said this, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It's a little simple picture and an analogy. 
Keep a grain of wheat where it's safe and secure. And it'll always be on its own. But plant it in the ground. Let it die, so to speak. And it will grow and be fruitful and produce many seeds. And in the same way, if Jesus had kept himself from the cross, then he would be comfortable and he would be safe. But he would never have been able to be our saviour. We would have been forever lost, forever separated from him, forever outside of his family, forever heading to a lost eternity. Actually, this was related to the temptation that the devil presented to Jesus in the desert. Remember when he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, all this I will give you if you bow down and worship. It was like the glory without the path to the cross. But Jesus rejected the devil's offer. Because Jesus came to die. He came to give his life for us. He came to take upon himself our sin. To pay the penalty that we deserve. To die our death sentence. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And because of his death, anyone, no matter who they are or where they are from, if they trust in him, they will be fully forgiven, adopted into God's family, completely saved. This is the impact of the cross. So John saw a vision of the worship of heaven, where they sang, you are worthy, Because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. So Jesus did come to draw people from all uh, nations to him. Including these Greeks. Into God's family. But in order to do this, the cross had to come first. The order of this is crucially important. It was through the cross that Jesus was fruitful. It was through his suffering that he was successful. It was through his death that we can experience his life. And folks, if we want to enter into that life, if we want to enter into all that Jesus won for us on the cross, then we need to follow his example and die so that we might live. This applies to our salvation. Look at verse 25. The man who loves his life will lose it. Well, a man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, this is not about hating every moment of our life because we're just having a, a terrible time. It's not about refusing to have any fun. And neither is it encouraging us to kind of check out of life and live in some kind of hermit cave on some island somewhere. as a Star Wars reference for Brad. Rather, it's about rejecting 
the way this world works. It's rejecting this worldview, this belief system, that lifestyle that says that real life, satisfying life, abundant life is about following your own heart. It's about fulfilling your dreams. It's about doing what you want in. It's about living the high life. Jesus said that if we try and cling on to our lives like that, then we're going to lose them. That's what the rich farmer did in Jesus' parable. He built bigger barns to store up his bumper crop. And he said to himself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You fool. Because that night he died and he left it all behind. What a tragedy when everything you've worked for, everything you've longed for, everything you've strived for is lost in a moment. And it all counts for nothing. So Jesus concluded, this is how it will be for with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. If we put all of our effort into getting all the stuff that the world can offer and the world values, if that's all we put our, our life into, then we are fooling God's sight. Because we're going to lose it all. And it'll all be for nothing. And so instead, Jesus wants us to hate our lives in this world. Now that doesn't mean they want to die because life is horrible. Rather it's about being willing to lay everything we are and everything we have at the feet of Jesus. Give up our own desires, our own plans and instead accept Jesus as our Saviour and our Lord. If we do this, we will gain everything. Eternal life, Jesus says. Life to the full that starts now and that will go on forever. This is Jesus' call. If anyone must come after, wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is what the Apostle Paul lived out. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he lost everything that this world can offer. He lost his reputation, his community, his career, his status, his comfort, even his safety. But in losing all of that, he gained everything. This is what he says. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness that of my, of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. So when it comes to our salvation, the order of things is crucially important. If we want to have life to the full, then Jesus says we need to be willing to die to ourselves now. But this principle also applies to our Christian lives. Look at the next verse, verse 26. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my, father, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. If we want to be honoured by the Father, if we want His well done, if we want to receive a reward and know that we've pleased our Lord, if we want to be with Jesus and share in His glory, then we must first serve Him now. We need to follow His example now. Walk on that road to self-sacrifice. Be willing to go to it with him into suffering. Even endure, as we're thinking about with the Christians in Eritrea, endure the rejection of this world. Just as the seed has to die before the harvest can be produced, so we need to first die to ourselves if we want to be fruitful in our Christian lives. Paul writes in Romans 8, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. The order of things is crucial. If we are looking for the comfortable life now, if we are seeking to protect our plans and our desires, do what feels good for us now. If we want to live to please ourselves now, if we want to avoid the challenges and the sacrifices, then we will ultimately miss out on that joy of knowing that we've served the Lord. But if we've trusted in Jesus, and if we commit our lives daily to following Him, that no matter what it costs, we can know the glory is coming. So guys, Jesus is up front and honest with us this morning. He's not trying to sugarcoat this. He's not trying to pull the wool over our eyes. He's not trying to hide the, the challenge in the, in the small print at the bottom of the, the document. Following Jesus is difficult and costly and demanding. And each of us will feel that cost in different ways. As Jesus comes and calls us to follow him in laying down our ambitions or our dreams or our lifestyle or our relationships or our finances, or our careers, or our comfort, or our time, or anything else. Following Jesus is 
following him on the road to the cross. So Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death in the cross. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We're thinking it's something else that we've not understood what Jesus meant when it means to follow him. It is costly. It is demanding. It is challenging. But it's worth it. But it's worth it. Whatever we lose in putting Jesus first is far outweighed by everything we gain. As Paul wrote, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, the order of things is crucially important. Jesus had first to suffer in order to be our Saviour. And we first need to die to ourselves for us to experience his life in all its fullness.